Welcome to Guns and God, the podcast that brings faith and politics into conversation with particular interest in extremism. Uh, my name is Helen Painter. I'm director of the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence. And my co-host today is Matthew Feldman. Matthew, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Professor Matthew Feldman, director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. And our guest today, we're very pleased to have David Tobe with us today. David um, trained as a barrister and he now works in counter-extremism activism. He's director of policy at the counter-extremism organisation Quilliam. David, it's really great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to be here. Um, David, you sent us a really interesting briefing document as we had hoped that you would do, um, which was something you wrote in September last year or co-wrote with, with a couple of other people in September last year for Quilliam or for the government, I think. Is that right? Well, it was for the Commission for Countering Extremism, who commissioned a number of papers, academic papers to be written on subjects, a range of subjects relating broadly to extremism. The subject that we focused on was uh, what both the Commission and we would call the mainstreaming of Islamism. That is the process by which views which are held in, you know, in a, a small percentage of, of, of a, uh, a population uh, and that would have previously been kept behind a cordon sanitaire, managed to break out into the mainstream. And, you know, this is something that we see with uh, forms of extremism or indeed social phenomena of all type types. Um, but our focus was on uh, uh, Islamist uh, groups. And David, if I can jump in there, having had some experience of working on uh, some of the CCE papers on right-wing extremism, there are a number of similarities immediately that jump to mind, as you mentioned there, about potentially mainstreaming some of the extremes. But just to, uh, I hope, characterize your, your position fairly, which I would think is a, a pretty liberal position, classically liberal position, which yeah. comes out as an anti-Daesh position, certainly anti-IS, but also you've been very vocal, for example, against the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in China. And I would, again, characterize that your position as in, in the wider uh, realm of anti-Muslim prejudice, uh, Islamist extremism. Is it fair to call that a liberal position? Right. I'm, I think it absolutely is. I mean, our approach to counter-extremism, like the commissions itself, and I think the right approach to take, starts with um, a, a, a liberal framework, uh, and an understanding of the importance of fundamental human rights, of equality between persons, uh, and, you know, the, the whole range of things that make up the, the liberal worldview. Things which are threatening to that are the things that we're concerned about. And so from that perspective, the wholesale repression of religious freedom in uh, East Turkestan uh, and the promotion of a theocratic caliphate, uh, that they're, they're two sides of the same coin, you know, they're from a liberal, both of them are objectionable equally and for essentially the same reasons. Although, I, I, and I take your point, of course, your concern in the paper mainstreaming Islamism is, of course, closer to home in the UK. And I think that, you know, again, to, to, to perhaps uh, qualify your position a bit, it's not just groups that are perhaps hostile to liberal democracy, but in some cases, I think that you really call out um, MEND and in particular CAGE as operating within liberal democracies as a kind of Trojan horse. Again, is that a fair characterization of your position, would you say? There is an element to which these organizations are sincere about what they say, and there's an element to which, uh, you know, they have a... a, a a Trojan horse aspect uh, to them. I mean, I, I, it's not it's not a term I would choose. I mean, look, 
yeah, the starting point with these guys is that, that they're absolutely sincere about what they say. They are, generally speaking, um, not sort of secretive or mealy-mouthed about what they, uh, they believe in. And the starting point for a group like CAGE and to a lesser extent, a group like MEND, although the two organisations are in very many ways sort of sister organisations, um, is that they uh, regard the Islamist interpretation of Islam as w what would be described as normative Islam. This is, you know, this is essentially what Islam uh, is about. There may be other forms of practice that may be diverse, but the proper way of, of thinking about the function of Islam uh, focuses on the creation of a Islamic state. Not Daesh, most of the people who we covered in the uh, the paper uh, came up quite explicitly and said, right, you know, when we said we did want a caliphate, we're not resigning from that. But the Islamic, the Islamic state in Iraq and Syria isn't what we were talking about. But nevertheless, the ideal is there. And that is essentially uh, what these groups, if they don't pr promote them, they defend those who promote them. Could you... Uh Fairly early on in your paper, you kind of sketch out what you describe as the, the logic of Sunni Islamism. Could you, you've touched on that already, could you just kind of go over that for our listeners and then I'd love to ask a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll do this in a slightly different way or a slightly more colloquial way than it was done uh, in the paper. Uh, th that section was really the preserve of Sheikh Osama uh, Hassan, who I think all of us uh, know and highly respect. And his ability to talk in theological terms isn't something that I would, would want to emulate. But, but I think the essence of the argument uh, is it starts off with the idea that, that the proper and ultimate uh, uh, goal of, uh, uh, of, of Islam is to create a state that is properly implements the Sharia. You know, the idea is that uh, you've got to, you, 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 there may be lots of states which are Muslim majority, but none of those states are properly uh, putting into, uh, uh, into practice and into effect divine law. So the creation of an Islamic state uh, is, is the first ideal. The second sort of associated idea is that there is a religious obligation uh, on Muslims to protect, defend, and of course, initially create uh, such uh, an Islamic state. And that is a religious obligation that falls upon you individually. Um, the, 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 the third uh, part of it is that your obligation to create that Islamic state might not involve going out and fighting or defending uh, the state, uh, but it might involve you doing such things as helping to ransom uh, prisoners who were captured during the course of jihad or engaging in other sorts of supportive activity. And then the final sort of component is uh, that, and this is something which, uh, which we talked about quite a lot, but in, uh, in a different uh, paper, again by Usama Hassan, uh, it, it very much uh, at the heart of the uh, Islamist argument is something that I mentioned earlier, which is the idea that there are no true uh, proper Islamic states. And one of the great tests of whether a state is a true Islamic state is, does it properly implement the hudud punishments? Does it, uh, it, it, does it apply corporal and capital punishment for a, a, a litany of offences that an Islamist will typically believe can be derived from uh, scripture, from uh, the Quran itself, and to uh, a supporting extent, the hadiths. 
and, and that, that is essentially the, the, the sort of Sunni model of, of Islamism. Thank you. So, so how, so you're describing Sunni Islamism, which is the, which is not necessarily what a, a, a typical Sunni Muslim would believe. Is that right? Or how, how would, how does it differ from I mean, the main, mainstream. Yeah, yeah mainstream. I, mean, look, in, I mean, in very many cases, these things are, are a matter of emphasis. I mean, you know, you, 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 a bit like Jews and the coming of the Messiah, some may be more messianic than others. Um, you know, there, there, is there, there is certainly uh, a, a four, five hundred years worth of theological development mm. from the Golden Age period, uh, Ibn Tamiya and people like that, from whom a lot of the Islamist uh, thinking is, is drawn. So, you know, a modern Islamic jurist would uh, consistently with the interpretive uh, tradition be looking at such things as, well, I mean, to give you a, a perfect example, hooded punishments. Are hooded punishments something that are required under Islam? You may find many uh, Muslims who are not Islamists who take the view that they are. Um, all Islamists will take the view that, that, that they are, although some like Tariq Ramadan might say, we need a moratorium on some of them. Um, but a modern uh, Islamic jurist, someone from Al-Azhar, for example, uh, uh, may well have a, a, a position on hooded punishments, which goes like this. Um, it is a, a, and this is very topical because we're in, we're recording on the day that, that our government is proposing to breach an international treaty. There is a uh, a requirement within Islamic uh, theology that states uh, honour treaties that they've entered into. Um, given that human rights standards are the creation of international treaty, then a Muslim state uh, that entered into such a treaty would be obliged to, um, uh, to, to honour that, and if they were in conflict with the application of hooded punishments, uh, then th those punishments couldn't be carried out. And that would be then supported by a, a series of other uh, theological arguments, which uh, go back to the sources themselves and work out exactly and to what extent uh, there would have been an obligation to impose those punishments in the first place. I, I mean, this is not my area. I'm not a, a theologian. Uh, I'm rehearsing other people's arguments. But the basic point I'm making is that, that like most jurisprudence and most theology, uh, it's developed. Um, it, it hasn't been set in, in aspic in, you know, the, the Middle Ages. And there has been a great deal of intellectual work done by extremely bright and capable Islamic uh, theologians who had to deal with the real issues that faced them, of which the key one was, how do we run a modern state? And do you mind if I come in there to, to grasp one of the nettles of, uh, again, somebody who has a, a passing knowledge, but, but not a great knowledge of, of uh, Sunni Islamism is that there would be a particular interpretation of jihad which might be different from the mainstream. My understanding is that that understanding in the mainstream would be of a spiritual nature. Is that a, a, a fair distinction between Islamism and mainstream practices? Followed Again, by it's very, very unfair of you to put me on the spot here. I'm sorry. I mean, there is a distinction between uh, uh, arm jihad. I think kital is the, the correct term, but I may be wrong on that. Uh, and other uses of the term jihad. It is absolutely not the case that there are uh, people out there who do not believe that there are any circumstances in which uh, taking up arms is 
justified and required. Look, you know, I mean, Islam is a complete uh, theological and moral and legal uh, code, and it contains within it, as all other decent theories of the state do, a just war theory. And it's actually a pretty good just war theory. Um, the, the, the differences, I think, are, are between uh, uh, most Islamists is where they would regard uh, that obligation to engage in physical contact, contact, combat to arise. Thank you. That's actually a very clear explanation. So I'm not sure if I agree with you because you sound very steeped in the arguments in any case. <laughs> Thank you. Well, well, let's move the conversation away from Islamic theology um, yeah. slightly. But you spoke about, or at least a paper spoke about, um, a kind of very binary worldview between Muslim and non-Muslim. I suppose I'd like to ask both of you the question, because you're both experts in, in, in a range of extremism. Is that something that we're seeing across, um, is, is that a common factor in, in lots of extremist groups, a sort of dualistic worldview? Shall I hand that to Matthew first? I absolutely think it is. I think that there is an us versus them that doesn't necessarily have to be Manichaean. And I absolutely agree with the nuanced take that David is approaching our discussion with. But if I had a back of an envelope calculation, I tend to think the more binary, the more Manichaean, the more extreme. There are obviously going to be exceptions there. But yes, I do tend to think that there is a you know, again, the academic terms might be scapegoating or even demonization. Um, and we do associate those at least with right-wing extremist groups. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the tendency to divide people into our friends and our enemies is something which isn't unique to uh, extremism. I mean, look, you know, I do it. Um, you know, Margaret Thatcher spoke of one of us. Uh, uh, you know, the, we, we naturally sort of look at uh, uh, people and decide whether they're likely to people be people will get on with uh, or can work with or can trust and regard as as allies i think the difference is whether uh, the degree of manichaeism in, in it uh, you know the extent to which people are regarded as irredeemably bad um you know deserving of of death you know for for who they are and what they uh, what they represent uh, i mean there's a very interesting um a uh, book uh, by uh, uh, Eamon Dean, who is uh, a person who acted as a British agent within Al-Qaeda for a number of years. Absolutely fascinating book called, I believe, Nine Lives that I highly recommend. Um, and, you know, he, he his moment where he effectively broke internally with uh, Al-Qaeda was after the East African uh, bombings, which you'll remember that long preceded the uh, the World Trade Center uh, bombing. But it was the first spectacular that Al-Qaeda had committed uh, outside uh, the Levant and the Middle East generally. And what had shocked him was uh, the uh, when he questioned the propriety of what Al-Qaeda had done, um, being told by his colleagues in Al-Qaeda, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, uh, that they're not Muslims. Uh, if they're, if, to the extent that they are Muslims, they'll get their reward in heaven in any case. Uh, but, you know, we don't really need to worry about people who've been killed because, you know, they're not part of our, uh, 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 of our in-group. And it was that callousness towards people who were outside that in-group that really, you know, I, because remember that, that, that one of the, 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 the great sort of virtues of Islam, which cuts across this, is that it 
does regard itself in many ways as a universal faith and it regards people as essentially Muslim um, and, and led astray to some degree or, or another. So it does, you know, this may not be the way that, that all Muslim majority societies work, but at least it has the ideal within it that we're all equal and that we're all brothers. I think you've touched upon, a, again, to deepen that a little bit, a, a really essential point about us and them. Uh, some of us listening to the podcast might be dyed in red labor or dyed in blue Tories and make an us and them distinction. But I, I'd like to think that, let's say, people could change their opinion on certain things in a way that would be different than the us and them propounded by North Korea, for example. And then, right. I, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I mean, I, I mean this moves beyond what we started talking about, um, but into a sort of broader societal phenomenon, polarization. Everybody talks about polarization all the time. But I remember, you know, about 10 years ago, it might have, must have been, uh, I was at a birthday party of a friend and uh, Ian McNichol, who was the general secretary of the Labour Party, was there. And I remember talking to him, you know, about the what was very clear in the culture of the Labour Party uh, in those days, even in those days, uh, where... Uh, you, your political opponents, Tories and speech marks, were regarded as as appalling people to be railed against, to be shouted at, you know, I've never kissed a Tory, I have no friends who are Tory. If my boyfriend was a Tory, I'd break up with them, you know, the screaming and the shouting at Conservatives. I, I'm saying, say, you know, okay, look, I mean, I, I've been a member of the Labour Party since 1987. Um, but yet, all the way through that time, I've had friends who've been conservatives, who've been conservative activists, MPs, and, you know, <laughs> to, to some, some uh, cabinet members. And these people, you know, are my friends. I'm not going to throw away my friendships of 30 years because people happen to be, dis, disagree with me on, on, on some aspect of, of, uh, of policy. And Ian McNichol said, yeah, no, absolutely. I've had friends who, you know, I, who are Tories and SNP, and we still are in touch and we're still friendly. And it's, you know, trying to get back to that, which is uh, important, not least, as you say, Matthew, because uh, I do very much believe that people can be persuaded by, uh, by uh, argument. And I'm going to tell a very self-serving story uh, here, which uh, I'm telling because it makes me sound good, but it also is a story that makes me, it gives me sort of faith in humanity. A few years ago, I went out for lunch with a very old friend who uh, was formerly very senior within the Islamist group, his book to hear. And uh, he said to me, I don't know if I've ever told you this, David, but uh, how, do, you, do you want to know the process by which I decided to leave his book to hear? And I said, no, go and tell me. And he said, well, okay. Um, they have in uh, his book to hear, one of the many great things about that, organization. They have study sessions, halakas uh, sections, where people have to sit down with a text and they read it and they discuss it, much as the International Marxist Group would have done in the 1970s. And they were handed an article that I'd written, which was essentially an article about why Claire Short shouldn't be hiring a room in Parliament for his book to hear meeting. And um, I, I set out in, you know, I went through the his book to hear constitution, and I explained how uh, what it provided for was in contrast and conflict with the things that constituted liberal democracy and that Labour was meant to stand for. And he said, uh, we were told in his book to hear that uh, our job, these were the sorts of arguments we would be encountering. So we would have to come up with a series of 
counter arguments that we could deploy at a drop of a hat. And my friend uh, sat and read my article. And when he'd finished, he said, uh, he said, I realized that I didn't actually have any arguments against it and that you were right. And that was the point at which he decided uh, to leave his book to here and to persuade other people to leave at the same time. So, you know, look, you can, you, people are, not everybody, but people are receptive to, to, to argument. I think the important thing to do is to have those arguments in a civil and polite way, which doesn't mean you can't sometimes be a bit sort of rude or ribbing, but, you know, essentially have respect for the people you disagree with. Uh, partly because they're humans, but also because uh, you won't persuade people by shouting at them. But it seems to me that for all of that and for a very considered position, um, the liberal position that we've staked out is something of a tightrope, it feels like these days, where you are very vocal about Islamist extremism and the threat it poses to, for, for example, Britain. I believe it's regarded as the, the main terrorist uh, threat today. And at the same time saying Muslims are amongst the most persecuted uh, minority group in the world in places as far away as India and, uh, of course, Myanmar, let alone in uh, the United States. Do you find that a difficult position or is that, no, a, is that really. a straightforward? No, because, I mean, it, because it all comes from, you know, the you know, freedom of conscience and belief is an important thing. Even if the people, you, you know, hold Islamist views, they still have a right to hold them and express them. Um, but, you know, it's important to, to make the point that what is happening to the Uyghurs uh, in China is not uh, uh, China attempting to protect itself from the Al-Qaeda threat. I mean, it is not true that there are no Uyghurs who have uh, fought with Al-Qaeda. Absolutely, there are Uyghurs who have gone off to fight with Al-Qaeda, as there have been in, in, in any Muslim population. But what's going on in China is not motivated by... Um, a, a desire for Chinese self-preservation. It's essentially, and we could talk about this sort of for, for some time, but I, I think it essentially boils down to a form of Han Chinese supremacism. Uh, you know, these people are Turkic. Uh, they they uh, uh, represent a threat in the same way that the Falun Gong uh, represent a threat. Then they are they are not part of the conforming main, and that, as we know, for historic reasons, China regards as an enormous threat to its existence. Kind of brings us back full circle a little bit, I guess, to to thinking about liberalism. Um, mm. And I think you used the language of Trojan horse earlier, Matthew. And I did, and and you didn't like that, David. Um, but you do talk about the kind of Janus faced approach of some of the these Islamist groups um, within the UK and how they they have this um, this this facade that on one side that that seems very well integrated and and very um cooperative uh and and yet there is perhaps another side which is much darker um i mean they wouldn't see it that way <laughs> you know, they okay don't, they don't, i mean you know they, they from their point of view they're not i, I mean they okay there's a degree to which some groups uh, engage in sort of pr and put their best foot forward uh and tend not to go big on the stuff which might be more problematic and less uh, palatable in order to make political alliances. But, you, you know, I mean, we, we are generally speaking talking about groups that sincerely want to play a part in public life. They see um, themselves as part of Britain uh, with something to contribute to Britain. Uh, but at the same time, they also regard normative Islam 
uh, in the Islamist sense, meaning, you know, working towards uh, the creation of a theocratic uh, caliphate as another parallel worthy uh, goal. So the problem isn't really with these groups. Uh, but, I mean, they don't lie about what it is they believe. They're generally, you know, the individuals who, who uh, preach sermons that we then comment on and everybody finds horrific and problematic. They don't, they don't think that they are doing something, you know, secretly telling people what the truth is. They want, it, they want people to, to understand what they, they stand for. They, they want people to ag- agree with them. Um, the fault really lies on, uh, and this is essentially what I mean by mainstreaming. There is a great desire uh, with politicians, um, public sector uh, organizations, civil society organizations, to go out and form coalitions with, or work with, or do things in partnership with um, uh, groups that represent the whole range of the population. And when they look at Muslim groups, they often, and this is often by mistake, uh, end up falling in with groups that are, are uh, Islamist. Uh, and those groups then, you know, engage in uh, sort of uh, big charitable events. They take part in conferences. Uh, the police come and visit the, the institutions. Politicians say nice things about those institutions. Um, and that leads to a breakdown of, of the cordon sanitaire that would, generally speaking, keep groups like that and individuals with views like that outside the mainstream of, of politics. That then creates a further dynamic, which I discuss uh, in the paper, which uh, is once a senior politician or a police officer or a charitable organization has worked with an institution that is problematic, it becomes increasingly difficult to criticize that organization and criticize the public sector or or politician uh, or civil society organization for engaging in in, uh, uh, activities uh, with it because, to take the first point first, um, uh, essentially uh, that organization is able to say, as they typically do, look, we're being attacked by these people who are calling us extremists, uh, but yet here we are with the chief superintendent of police. Would he really be visiting our institution if it was true that we were extremists? Um, And uh, that that, that then makes it... uh, uh, more difficult to criticise the chief superintendent of police because uh, n- nobody likes being told you've made a terrible error. <laughs> you know, and people will naturally, being human, try to justify what they've done and uh, will think badly of people who are criticising them. So, so how do we make a way forward here? Then I, I saw when on one of the you had lots of. Um, and the screenshots of things at the back of the report. And I was intrigued by one in particular that caught my attention, um, which was an interfaith walk for peace. And mm. I noticed that um, the Salvation Army had been involved and I couldn't quite see the rest. But um, yeah. so as, as a Christian minister, you know, yeah. if, uh, how do I respond when an organisation says, let's do something cooperatively like this? And, and my heart says, yeah, let's. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the, f- the first point is, it would be crazy to suggest that there should never be any engagement at all with uh, Islamist institutions. I mean, look, to take one example, uh, there, are, there is a particular mosque in, in London which clearly has very, very close ties to Hamas. Uh, it, um, you know, its imam has been pictured uh, praying at the grave of the founder of Hamas. Um, 
the uh, one of its trustees until recently was one of the founding members of Hamas and so on and so forth. But that organization um, serves uh, its local population. And it is also an organization which faces threats. You know, there is a, a risk of a right-wing terrorist attack on them. Indeed, in that area, there was uh, a, uh, a, a, a terrorist attack which resulted in, in uh, a death. Now, I'm absolutely not going to say the police shouldn't go along and say, uh, we care about you, we care about your safety, we care about your parishioners' safety, we stand behind you, you know, when you face these threats. Um, the important thing to do is to do that with open eyes and to make sure that it has limits and make sure that it doesn't generally sort of turn into touchy-feely, we think this is a wonderful institution that only produces good in the local community. A lot of the problem I think that people face is that um, this is alien and confusing and technical and requires a degree of specialist knowledge. And so, you know, in answer to your question, what can you do? Uh, I, I think that there is some value uh, uh, in getting people in to come and talk to an organization. Uh, ideally, people who are, who are Muslim and who understand the lay of the land, you know, who understand the, uh, the, 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 the way in which various institutions are, are orientated and who can explain what the philosophy behind some of the Islamist institutions are and explain why those are in conflict with the values which uh, people who are, are liberals, including Christians who are liberals, um, uh, have. And one of the problems that people have, and I know this is a, this is a huge problem in the civil service, where people are rotated all the time. Um, people who work in the civil service tell me, uh, I, it takes me two years to get uh, civil servants in my department up to speed on the nature of the challenge that we face and how the philosophy of this all works. And then they are rotated somewhere else and then somebody else comes in and you're back to square one. Um, I think there's a real need for literacy and understanding. Um, and that does, I think, mean um, getting people in who are reputable, who can explain things uh, and explain them well and in a comprehensible way so that you are forearmed uh, by being forewarned. Can I take a slightly different tack of something that you allude to in the conclusion and set out um, uh, very explicitly in the introduction to your paper about the cordon sanitaire? And it's something, again, that has real parallels with, or the dissolving of a cordon sanitaire has real parallels. Very with, much so. With the far right. And the far left as well. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I only just want to maintain it on my patch here. Just yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Um, 20 years ago, we might have been able to say, these guys are the right-wing extremists, stay away from them. They're all in the BNP, for example. Whereas it's become much more difficult, both uh, through media and some top-down stuff, but groups that, dare I say, straddle the cordon sanitaire. A great, a great example is the DFLA. Not clearly extremists, but they're not your normal, uh, let's say, uh, protest group, right? They're clearly more ideological. And I found it very difficult a generation ago. We could have said, these are the people inciting murder against Salman Rushdie, for example. But th there have been a proliferation of groups on the radical right that are more or less straddling the cordon sanitaire, therefore seemingly making its reintroduction very difficult. I don't know if that's something that um, has... Uh, shades of relevance to... I, I agree and disagree. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree in the sense that um, 
absolutely one of the things that uh, characterizes the modern era is that, uh, you know, in order to be an extremist or a radical, you don't have to do what you needed to do back in the 80s. Back in the 80s, in order to do, you know, you had to know the pub to go to, the meeting that was going to be above the pub that you could go to, the radical bookshop in Camden or or the East End that you could go to to buy the copy of that that newspaper. You know, there were all sorts of, of things you needed to leap in order Indeed. to do it to do it uh, nowadays uh, as we know all this stuff is immediately available and you can get your hands on it within sort of 10 seconds of, of thinking i'd like to have a look at this and as a result uh, there absolutely has been a, a blurring of boundaries and uh, you know the top-down organization uh, that character i mean i see this in, in left-wing politics very clearly you know in, in left-wing politics in the past you were either a Stalinist in the Communist Party, a Euro-Communist, or, or, or in one of the Trotskyite groups. You might also conceivably be an anarchist and you might be interested in some sort of green sort of anarchism or something like that. But there were essentially a set number of groups that you could join. They had a line. You learnt the line and you, you parroted that line and that was, you know, that was, that was your politics. Uh, now we've moved on, I think, away from that towards the politics of causes. And I think the, the DFLA is a, probably a good example of that. You know, these are people who don't have a top-down uh, uh, leadership. Uh, they, what they believe is really up to them. Um, and what brings them together is, is a cause. And you see that very much on the left as well. So I agree with you to that extent, but I disagree to this extent. There is... Cons- it, it, <sighs> Islamist groups are considerably more like um, uh, revolutionary socialist groups um, of the 1970s and 80s. So in the UK, you would be a member of, um, you know, a Jamaat Islami uh, aligned group, or perhaps very less likely a Muslim Brotherhood aligned group. Or if you were a real intellectual and you passed the screening to get in, you might be lucky enough to become a member of Hisbut Tahir. Uh, if you decided that Hisbut Tahir were too much about talk and not enough about action, you'd move off into Al Mahajarun. And, uh, you know, there are, are groups like MPAC, I suppose, which aren't particularly uh, intellectual um, that, that are outside that model. And there are, of course, individuals who watch lectures of Awalaki on the internet and decide that now's the time to go and try to murder a, a, a Labour uh, cabinet minister. But by and large, you, uh, you, 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 what you do and what you believe uh, is uh, pr- provided to you in a line from the organisation that you uh, belong to. So it's a much more disciplined uh, uh, area. I'm not saying that, that it hasn't become a little bit more fluid, but um, you know, it's a lot more disciplined than the causes-led politics that I see on the left. And I, I want to just re-emphasize a point that you made earlier that seems to me really profoundly, you know, how much the digital has transformed our lives. And I'll give an example that um, certainly we see in some radical right groups, but maybe perhaps some, some Islamist groups as well, which is Holocaust denial. You know, in its early forms in the 70s and 80s, it was actually hard to get. And as you say, you had to know which uh, magazine to subscribe to, or you had to know a radical bookseller, you had to yep. uh, be part of a, a particular subculture. The one thing you couldn't do is, I shouldn't say couldn't, the one thing that would be all but impossible to do would be to stumble across it. And I think yes. that seems to me a very important distinction. Uh, yes. There were no algorithms at play that would take you down a rabbit hole. Yes, um, th- that's true. And the algorithms uh, that, that then feed you more and more and more of this material, the more you see of it, never 
partly because of the way the algorithm works, but partly because it isn't out there. No, you know, no good refutations uh, uh, of uh, that material. So yeah, there, there, that that is something that is is far more common. I mean, you do get people. Absolutely, you do get people who. Um, as people say, self-radicalized by watching uh, YouTube videos of, of extremist preachers. But um, it, that, it isn't truly self-radicalization because somebody had to make those videos and they had to put them up there. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, typically there are, uh, individuals won't be completely isolated. They will find other people in chat forums to speak to uh, who will either be um, the police undercover or alternatively will be trying to persuade them uh, that they really ought to be doing uh, something to put their beliefs into action. I, this would be the part where I, perhaps on the, the radical right, see things a little bit different because I see a lot of self-radicalized people who, yes, are coming from a, a social media blob of like-minded people, but have absolutely no logistical help in the preparation or going through a terrorist cycle. And we just see it time and time again. And the thing that I must say um, that I find very frightening is it's, it's absolutely happening younger and younger. Every case that I work for the CPS now, or almost everyone involves children. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Who are, I mean, who are of course, digital natives and perhaps more experienced than, than, than or didn't see a change that older people might have done towards the digital. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, they, this is the reality that they've been brought up with and therefore they don't see it as a radical, new or frightening uh, uh, thing at all. I mean, I, I have to say uh, that, I mean, you know, uh, there are... A lot, there are, are many people who will find themselves going down that rabbit hole, but my experience of, of uh, sort of kids who are in their sort of late teens uh, is that they are also very, very literate. That is, they are good at detecting what is rubbish. Um, so, you know, my, my son was telling, my son had, uh, uh, was theorizing a couple of months ago about a particular conspiracy theory um, that he thought might be capable of being developed from Joe Biden's um, ice cream ordering um, uh, policies for his campaign. And he very excitedly said to me last night, this is absolutely amazing. I'm reading 4chan at the moment and I can see people coming up with this theory in real time. They're actually developing this crazy conspiracy theory as we go. So, you know, I mean, kids are able to look at this stuff and they can tell when it's rubbish. Um, I, I think you often need a sort of a, a personal factor that, that means that you look at this stuff and think, yeah, this is what I want. This is, this is how I see myself. This is the sort of person I'd like to become. So, so what you're saying is that they are selecting the narrative that they choose to believe according to other factors that, that are already predetermined or at least in the process of formation in their own minds. Is well, that... Isn't, that, isn't that the case with all of us? Sure. I, I think, you know, I mean, we have, we have capacities, but what we do very much depends on, uh, on you know, the, the, the situation that we, uh, we, we find ourselves in. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, for many people, uh, amazing, you know, there are many factors that may lead to radicalization and Matthew and you will know this as well as, 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 as I do. Um, but you know, there will be absolutely people who, who have psychological uh, issues, which result in them uh, moving into uh, extremism and possibly violent extremism. You have people who are, um, uh, who are, uh, have, have sort of personal, but non-psychological, you know, 
the phenomenon of the reformed drug dealer who becomes the jihadist in Syria um, is uh, is little understood, but should be better understood. You know, there are people who see uh, uh, the the option of religious extremism is essentially a redemption, a cancelling out of their past uh, misdeeds. So there'll be a whole range of factors like that. But the key factor, the thing that that pushes somebody in a particular direction is ideological. Um, It is essentially people being persuaded of the rightness of the argument. Can I ask you about... um the use of the Quran in, in that. Now, you and I bumped into each other last week at an event, didn't we? It was the we launch did. of a book um, called Scripture and Violence, which was yeah. essentially arguing, I haven't finished reading it yet, but essentially arguing that, that scriptures are not hugely causative in radicalization, I think, but, but that they can be instrumentalized for that. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, you? I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you know, it, it, texts are not self-interpreting, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, all, of, all of us here uh, in one way or another have a job of, of interpreting texts. Yeah, you know, I, I used to be a, 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 a practicing uh, lawyer and my job was looking at texts and working out what they meant. And, you know, the, the, there is a, a wealth of thick, uh, that that sits and halacha in the Jewish sense, and I forget what the Christian term is, but just the theology that sits on the back of those scriptures mm. is tremendously important and uh, and extremely rich and uh, uh, and and varied. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, it, it is completely pointless to say uh, you know, to, to essentialize about uh, religions because, as we know, the texts that we're dealing with uh, are in both Christianity and Judaism, to a lesser extent in Islam, but but to a significant extent, if you look at the Hadiths rather than the Quran, they are a patchwork of, of, of different texts that uh, deal with different situations by different writers with different perspectives. And there is a, a, the, the task of a theologian is to create a coherent whole lot of that. And you, you may come up with a different product um, depending upon your, partic- your, your specific theological cast. Um, David, as we kind of start to move towards port a little bit, there's one question that you, a point you raised at the beginning that I think really set out pretty politically uh, a liberal position, an anti-Daesh and an anti-Chinese uh, internment position. But to take a slightly more conservative tack um, in defense of liberalism, one criticism that has been sometimes put forward by people of faith is that liberalism doesn't have a lot of tolerance for different expressions of faith in the public sphere. Is that something that while perhaps people are politically liberal defending the positions that you had is a subject that that is open for criticism within liberalism itself? Right. So that is an excellent question. And I'm very glad you asked me it. Um, I, I've said this before um, and I'm now going to say it again, but liberalism that doesn't work for religious conservatives isn't liberalism. Uh, the test of whether liberalism works is whether it provides a happy home for people who have strongly conservative uh, moral uh, and religious uh, uh, beliefs. Because, it, you know, it's very easy to be tolerant of views that you uh, uh, agree with. But then, you know, that, 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 that really doesn't achieve the pluralism that liberalism uh, is the, the, the crowning glory, I think, of, of liberalism. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 this is a, a point that uh, uh, we will typically make. Um, I, I have many friends who are religious conservatives and liberals, and uh, they do so because of the following logic. The best possible state for a religious conservative 
uh, to live in is a religious state that happens to agree absolutely in 100% in every single way with every aspect of your interpretation. That is not going to happen. I mean, it, it, we, we saw it not happening in Syria where, you know, Al-Qaeda members were being uh, uh, executed by ISIS for being the wrong sort of uh, Islamist. The same thing happened to his to here, who went out there and back to uh, a militia and were, were, I believe, essentially cut to pieces by uh, ISIS. So the question is, you know, what's the best uh, sort of state to live in, assuming you can't get that perfect state? And the answer is it's a state that protects freedom of belief and conscience, which allows you the greatest degree of autonomy uh, and uh, restricts state interference in w w what you believe and do to the greatest extent possible, commensurate with the rights and freedoms of others. And so, you know, liberalism isn't there to help people who are sort of politically liberal. We live in a, a state which is essentially liberal, where, where even illiberal people have liberal social views these days, although of course that might change. But it's the, the, the people for whom liberalism needs to work are the people who, you know, to give a, 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 a fairly sort of obvious example, the people who don't want to bake uh, a cake to commemorate a gay occasion. Um, you know, the people who uh, want to live their lives in a closed uh, religious community with minimal uh, contact with the outside world. Now, all of those situations create problems in their own rights, because then you move on and say, well, what, what do we do about individuals within those communities whose uh, autonomy is being uh, infringed? But the starting point has to be liberalism must work for religious conservatives uh, or else it's not liberalism. A good place to end. I've been reading um, Stanley Fish recently about freedom of speech. Oh, yeah. And uh, I thought his, his arguments, which I hadn't really encountered before, um, but I thought they were very persuasive and, uh, and similar, I think, to, to what you're saying. Or maybe he's a good guy. Yeah. No, no, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He has a, he has a lovely explanation of why academics uh, buy Volvos. Uh, the, his answer is because they're expensive and ugly, so they don't look showy. <laughs> I'm hey, reminded, of, been... I'm reminded oh. of Kissinger's famous injunction that uh, we academics get very head up over subjects because the, uh, of course, because it's uh, also an unimportant, right? Yes. The stakes are so small. The stakes are so small, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't I agree with that. I, da I dare say that uh, we may have bucked that trend here because at least some of the subject matter that we've been discussing has very high stakes, not least about the success of liberalism, a reestablishment of a cordon sanitaire and the way in which one can hold pretty consistent liberal positions that are both um, protecting Muslim minorities, but also calling out Islamist extremism. And yeah. I, I, I would dare say that I think in practice, that position seems to be under assault more these days and is less, dare I say, clearly propounded by people like yourself than I oftentimes get to listen to. Yeah, I think there is a degree to which after sort of 10 or 15 years of struggle, some people simply go, ah, oh, screw it. I'm, I'm going to throw my lot in with whichever side it is, you know, um, and uh, that, that's something we, we really ought to be trying to uh, uh, avoid. I mean, that maybe that's because it's often said of liberals that liberals, the great mistake liberals mistake, make is to assume that everybody's essentially friends or could be friends. And sometimes there are just conflicts that can't be, uh, can't be mediated or uh, resolved. But, you know, I, I, as well as a liberal, I'm an optimist. And I hope that's not true. That's brilliant. 
David, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Really appreciated your paper. I'll put a link to the paper, if I may, on the uh, on the podcast site when it's published. Um, thank you. And uh, thank you very much for, for joining us and for stimulating our, our thinking today. You've been listening to Guns and God. Co-hosts today were Helen Painter and Matthew Feldman, and our guest was David Tobe.